John chapter 8 uh, is a passage on which today's teaching is based. I'm going to read from verses 2 through 11. At dawn, he, that's Jesus, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And this is God's word. The hard sayings of Jesus, they tell us about the character of Jesus. They tell us about the mission of Jesus. And the gospel according to St. John teaches us three things in this passage in chapter 8. The patience of Jesus, the poise of Jesus, the pardon of Jesus. All three Ps, try to make it cute for you so you remember. The patience of Jesus the poise of Jesus, the pardon of Jesus. First, we're going to look at the patience of Jesus. Verse 2, here's Jesus. He's teaching at a temple. When the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they bring in this woman who's caught in the act of adultery, and they ask him, what do you say? Two times they say that the woman was caught in the act in verses 3 and 4, and it's because in the Mosaic law, adultery is punishable by death. It's a capital crime. Notice, they didn't ask Jesus if, they thought, if he thought that the woman was guilty. That meant it must have been clear. It must have been evident that the woman was guilty. The woman had no defense. In verse 5, they were asking Jesus about the penalty. Now, that sounds harsh. But I want to help, to help you understand, the biblical law was very nuanced. It was careful, more than you think. It was careful. It was gracious, especially in the context of capital cases. Today, the criminal justice system, it's based on the probability of, of, of an act. But in ancient times, the laws around evidence were a lot stricter. So in order to convict somebody who, uh, of adultery, because they understood the risk, you needed two witnesses who actually saw the sexual act taking place. And so almost no one was ever committed, uh, convicted. Almost no one was executed. But here's this woman. She's got a lot of things going against her. But she's caught, and the law says we need to execute her. What do you say? It's a brilliant trap. It's a brilliant chat because up until this point, Jesus had a reputation for compassion. He had a reputation for grace. But is he just? Does he honor the law? Verse 6, the text says that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they were using, using this as a way to trap Jesus, as a way of accusing Jesus. They didn't care about this woman. In ancient times, uh, a woman's testimony didn't even hold water in court. 
She had no rights. So this woman was really just a tool. They didn't care what happened to the woman. What's the trap? The trap is this. On one hand, if Jesus pardons the woman, it would affirm the, the grace of it would affirm the compassion of Jesus, but he'd be trampling on the law. He'd be trampling on the justice of God because this woman had no defense. She was, she was caught in the act. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, yes, we need to obey the law, we need to execute this woman, he would be affirming the justice of God, but then he'd be trampling on the grace of God. He'd be trampling on the compassion of God. On one hand, it disproves Jesus as a righteous king. But on the other hand, it would disprove Jesus as a gracious king. It's a nuts and trap. Because you're either going to uphold the woman or the law, but you can't uphold both the woman and the law. And so whether you disprove the justice of Jesus, whether you disprove the grace of Jesus, if you deny even one aspect of Jesus' character, the entire house falls down, you disprove all of Jesus' character, all of his claims. How does Jesus respond? Like you gotta think about this. The teachers, they bring this woman, they're humiliating this woman. She's likely standing just virtually naked. I mean, she was caught in the act of adultery in front of the entire, the, the, just the elite Jewish religious leadership. And even before a single stone was hurled at her, they murdered the woman's dignity they murdered her reputation, her character. I mean, she's never going to be the same. She's never going to be the same society. This is a trauma. It's more than just a trauma. I mean, this will ruin her in her time, in ancient times. Throughout history, religion, even the church, wrongly has used religion to control women, to demean women, to put down women. But look at the gentleness of Jesus. Look at the grace of Jesus. Look at the patience of Jesus. I mean, how do we act? You know how we act? There is a spiritual insecurity of the heart that drives us. We love to see people go down. We want to bring people down. We love people uh, going down. It's why gossip is so addictive. It's why rumors are so addictive. Even cancel culture today, it's, it's an addictive, it's got an addictive power over us. Why? Because seeing that person go down, seeing that person fail, it, it pretty much gives us a greater sense of worth. It almost affirms you when you point at somebody else who's worse than you. It gives you a sense of superiority. So what do we do? We throw stones. We're constantly throwing stones at other people. We murder people's reputations. We look at people who are maybe morally weaker than us or at least lower on some sort of standard. They just may be, if you go into the office, there's always people that you gravitate towards because you want to move up. Then there's also people you gravitate away from because they will bring you down. We look at weaker people, sinful people, and we judge them. We withdraw from them. We gossip about them. We're executing them. You know what you need to do? You need to uh, get rid of your superiority, your sense of superiority over people. And I'm not just talking about in the church. I mean, the church is notorious for that. But we need to do that in the context of our office. It'll make you a completely different person. We need to do this in the context of your relationships. We need to do this at home. 
very subtle how this stuff plays out. On one hand, because you did not earn the love of God, you did not deserve the love of God, the gospel affords a deep humility. But on the other hand, because salvation is not something that you've earned, because it doesn't depend on your record, but on Jesus' perfect record, it removes the need to prove yourself. It gets rid of the, the arrogance. And because the gospel gets rid of that approval-seeking nature in us that drives our egos, I mean, people act superior because essentially they feel inferior. You're no longer a slave to that anymore. You're no longer a slave to the fear of man. The gospel gives you a deeper humility and also endows you with a deep courage. That's power. It's going to make you gentle. It's going to make you patient. It makes you winsome. Look at the patience of Jesus here. Secondly, let's look at the poise of Jesus. In verses 6 through 9, you have these religious people, these leaders. They challenge, they're constantly, it says they kept on questioning him. They're challenging Jesus. What does Jesus do? He just stoops down. He just bends down. He's just writing on the ground. What did he write? Now, I've looked at scholars and commentators. They say a lot of different things. In fact, nobody seems to agree on what he was actually writing. And you go from like one end of the spectrum to the other and what he possibly could have been writing. But what that really tells you is no one really knows. We don't really know what he wrote. Clearly, John didn't care. He didn't at least care to tell us what he wrote. Probably wasn't that important. But what it does teach us is one, the story happened. It's real. John wasn't writing fiction. He was writing news, good news. It's a gospel, according to John. In ancient times, the reason why we know this, in ancient times, you never included mundane details, ancillary details to the main part of the story. The only reason why you would include it in a story like this, in a narrative like this, is because it actually happened. Secondly, look, look at the uh, poise of Jesus. He's completely unshaken. You do not see his heartbeat, his heart rate increase one bit. They're constantly questioning him. He's just writing on the ground. He doesn't bend to their wishes. He doesn't bend to their urgencies. This woman is on the brink of death. He's just writing on the ground. That's what he's doing. Does she get to live or does she, does she die? He's just writing on the ground. You know what that means? On one hand, Jesus Christ is incredibly powerful. I mean, he could have wiped everyone out. But on the other hand, he's incredibly wise, incredibly self-controlled, incredibly poised. We're not like that. When you have power and somebody's attacking you, what do we do? We like to show people how powerful we are. We act superior because deep inside our nature we feel so inferior. But Jesus is incredibly poised. If you look at this woman, I mean, she's on the brink of death. But how amazing is it to know that we have a God, no matter what your circumstance, you could be on the brink of death, and yet Jesus is unrattled. He's completely poised. He's poised and he's powerful. In fact, he's poised because he's powerful. The gospel gives us a poise because the gospel gives us power. A lot of us here live powerless lives. You may have grown up in the church, and yet your life as a Christian 
you actually, you feel less of yourself than before you met Jesus. You're living powerless lives and you're powerless because you have no poise and you're poiseless because you have no power. What does Jesus say? In verse seven, <clears throat> he says, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, growing up, I used to think that what this meant is that Jesus is saying only a sinless person would ever have the authority to execute this woman. And you're all sinners here, so stop judging. And so they were so convicted by that, they all went away, one at a time. No way. Pharisees would never give in into that kind of logic. They never would have agreed with that kind of logic. And you wouldn't either. You know why? Because if you agree with that kind of logic, Hitler gets away. If you agree with that kind of logic, then a serial killer gets away with it, completely free. It will go against the justice of God. And that's what this passage is about. Is Jesus just? We get that he's gracious, but is he just? <clears throat> Jesus is actually referring to a biblical justice here. You see this in books like Deuteronomy. In chapter 13, if you're a witness, it implies if you're a witness, you must initiate the execution. But then you can't be guilty of the same crime. In other words, you can't be an adulterer if you want to be a witness of adultery. You can't convict somebody of adultery if you're guilty of the same crime. And Jesus knows, especially these men, come on, some of these guys, they're public figures. They're political figures. They're wealthy men, educated, high status. Adultery? He knows. They just act religious. It's a religious culture. And Jesus knows there's a double standard, especially when it comes to women here. In the law, in the law it specifically states that both the man and the woman who are committing adultery are to be executed. Where's the man here? Man got away. There's no guy. And so Jesus knows either he saw the act, they saw the act, and they only convicted the woman, which means that this whole thing was likely a conspiracy. It was set up. Remember, they set it up as a trap to accuse Jesus. More than likely, this was a conspiracy. Or the witness was part of the act. How else would they catch her? It's really hard to catch somebody committing the act of adultery. Right? Or they were lying. So whether they were false witnesses, whether they were part of the act, whether they conspired the act, they were all punishable. Jesus is saying, honor the law. Of course I honor the law. But what about you honoring the law? What about the way you treat the law? What about the way you live your life? What about your adultery? And if not adultery, what about your conspiracy? If not conspiracy, what about your lies? Essentially, he's taking away their right to be witnesses because they're all guilty. And Jesus is saying here, in other words, what he's saying is, I see you. I see all of you. I am your witness. I know every little thing. I've seen it all. None of you are innocent. Just because you got away with it, because you're wealthy, because you're, you have status and you're respected, 
and you're beating up on defenseless people as a way to make yourself feel better about yourself. Notice, on one hand, Jesus, he never says a stone shouldn't be thrown. He never denies that the woman deserves to be punished. But what he's saying is you're all guilty of the same crime. If not, you're guilty of the conspiracy. You're making a tool out of somebody just to, just to increase your sense of worth. Rather than coming clean, you're throwing stones at other people so you can come out clean. I mean, if you think about it, that's what gossip is. I mean, here today, we don't execute people for what they've done, right? We don't take the law into our own hands and execute people if, they, if we know they've committed some grave sin. But what do we do? What gossip is, is you're, confess you're confessing someone else's sins. And there's something about that satisfying because it makes you feel better about yourself. In verse 9, they're so cut to the heart, they start to walk away one by one. Look at the wisdom of Jesus. Look at the boldness of Jesus. Look at the poise of Jesus. Now we're going to look at the pardon of Jesus. Now he turns to the woman. Everyone else is gone. In verse 9, <clears throat> most likely, she is naked, terrified. I mean, she was on trial for her life. And she had no rights. That's what I mean. She had everything going against her. A, woman's, a woman had no rights in ancient times. She's totally exposed, standing before the elite Jewish ruling religious council, so to speak, terrified, weeping. She's a mess. She knows she's guilty. No defense. But to her, Jesus says in verse 10, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. It's verse 11. But neither do I condemn you. Go now, leave your life of sin. What Jesus should be saying is, you are guilty and condemned, or you are not guilty and not condemned. But how can you be guilty and not condemned? That's the entire point of this text. How will Jesus uphold and honor both the justice of God and the grace of God? And this is the remarkable point of this text. Because, I mean, think about it. Is Jesus just about letting people go? By the way, um, you know, when people look at the church, I'm a pastor, so I, I see this all the time. Someone has committed a grave wrongdoing in the church. They've done something wrong. They actually deserve correction. In, in biblical order in the church, there, there is even, if it gets too bad, what happens is if there's, you know, complete, um, you know, lack of repentance, there, you can actually move into articles of what they call excommunication, where you remove them from the fellowship, right? There's, a, there's lots of correction. There's admonishment because, you know, a Christian's lifestyle is about repentance more than anything. And uh, I always hear this as a pastor, but wasn't, isn't Jesus about love? Isn't Jesus about grace? Shouldn't the church be gracious to these people? Doesn't it go against? I mean, they're always questioning. I mean, aren't we supposed to be about loving people? Notice, Jesus doesn't say to this woman, okay? 
He doesn't say, oh, we all make mistakes. I get it. I mean, you know, passion, and then you kind of got like carried away with it. I get it. You know, and those guys, they're all bullies. They're all religious people. No one cares about them. It doesn't matter what they think. It matters what I think. It matters what you think about yourself. You're going to be fine. He doesn't say that. In fact, he says in verse 11, I don't condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. In other words, you're a sinner, but you're not condemned. He doesn't just blame religion. He doesn't say, you know what the problem is? Organized religion. You know what the problem is? This church structure. That's not what he says. Because if he was doing that, then he'd be throwing stones. And you'd still be throwing stones. You're still throwing stones because you're still trying to come out clean on your own. He says, I want you to own your sin. I want you to confess your sin. I want you to leave your life of sin. He doesn't say, I want you to leave your act of sin. Very clear. He says, your life is in sin. It's impossible unless something happens to change your nature. Go and leave your life of sin. You are a sinner, but you're no longer condemned. How? This is remarkable. You gotta remember this woman, where she's at right now. Everybody else walks away, one by one. But Jesus is left. She's standing before the one man who not only saw all those people, all those other men, but sees her too. He is the ultimate witness the one person who has the right to throw a stone, the one person who has the right to execute. I mean, the other men, it's terrifying. But one by one, they start to walk away. Then Jesus is left. That is the ultimate terror. The other people, they held court, gone. But then verse 9, until only Jesus was left, Jesus Christ, who's literally without sin, not just that sin, so he gets to be a witness, not just that sin, no conspiracy, no lies, he has no sin, so he is the ultimate witness. He's the only one with the right to cast a stone. But pastor, if God is such a loving God, why can't he just let everyone go? I mean, if he's really loving and he's really forgiving, why can't he just let everyone go? Otherwise, he really wouldn't be loving. If you've ever been betrayed in your life, if you've ever been hurt deeply by somebody in your life, can you just walk away and let them go? None of you have ever been able to do that, even from a sl simple slight. It hurts, doesn't it? You know why it hurts? It's almost like that person 
owes you a debt. It's almost like that person took something from you and now they owe you. Maybe they took away your dignity. Maybe they took away your reputation. Maybe they took some, but whatever it is, there's something that that person did to deeply, if you've deeply, deeply been betrayed or deeply been hurt, it's like that person owes a sin debt to you. And you have two options. Most of us want to pay them back. So what do we do? We like to talk about people. We like to destroy them. We murder them behind their backs. That's the natural thing to do. That's what we like to do. But the other thing to do, oh, and, and there's many other things. I mean, you can retaliate. You could just be overt. You could be covert. There's a lot of stuff you can do. But the other thing you could do is you can just let them go. But by letting them go, you know what you're doing? All that anger, all that, there's no closure. All that anger and, and pain, who swallows that pain? See, if you retaliate, they're swallowing the pain. You're giving them what they owe you, right? But if you forgive, you're swallowing the pain. You're taking on the debt. No matter what, either way, somebody pays. There's no such thing as just letting it go. Not if you've been hurt. And if that's how it is with finite beings who are just simply slighted here or there, or maybe something deep, how much more for an infinite God who has absorbed infinite sin from his people? This woman, she deserved to receive the penalty then for that betrayal. But instead, in verse 11, she receives the pardon for that betrayal. A great hymn, pardon for sin, and a peace that endureth, thine own dear pleasure to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new excuses I see. Is that how you sing it? Morning by morning, new explanations, I see. Morning by morning, new people to blame, I see. A lot of people live like that here, looking for excuses, looking to blame other people. Morning by morning, new mercies, I see. Will you throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus? If this woman didn't get the stone, then who got the stone? If this woman didn't pay the price, then who paid the price? Later on in John chapter 8, the Pharisees, literally in that chapter, just further down, the Pharisees and the Jews, they kind of come back and they challenge Jesus again. They challenge his ultimate claim because essentially he's claiming to be God. And in verse 59, it says this, at this, they all picked up their stones to stone him. Not because he's sinful, but because he's sinless. 
Jesus would be judged. Jesus would be condemned. And so at the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus is praying, Father, take this cup from me. The cup that Jesus was referring to is the cup of the full wrath of the justice and judgment of God as a penalty for our sins. Why did the woman receive pardon? Jesus, looking at this woman, is thinking at another level with this woman. She gets to escape the death sentence because Jesus would receive the death sentence. And so in John chapter 19, we have another trial. Pontius Pilate, right, the ruling governor of that area, he says to the Jews, I find no basis for your charge against Jesus. In other words, I've done my investigation and Jesus is innocent. But the people say, crucify, crucify. This woman, she's guilty. She's condemned. She's naked. She's exposed. She's alone. She is on her own. She is rejected, but she's free. And yet here's Jesus, sinless, righteous, pure, innocent, perfect, holy. And yet he is condemned. They strip him naked. They place him on the cross. And on the cross, he faced our judgment and he faced it completely alone, totally alone. How alone? On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this, what that woman faced what that woman faced in front of those men would have been a mere pebble compared to the judgment that I am facing now. The ultimate rejection of God. God has turned his face from me. And so I have no defense. I am completely exposed. I'm being crushed by the pelting boulder of the judgment of God. Religion says this, you're either guilty or you're not guilty. You're either condemned as a result or you're not condemned. Either way, you have to prove it out. You have to work for that. You've got to fight until you can prove yourself. You've got to prove yourself. That's why we're always so defensive all the time. It's because we're afraid of stones. We don't get the gospel. We're afraid of stones. Those stones that people have, we're more fearful of that than the wrath of God and the judgment that we actually deserved and earned. That's what we earned. And yet that's been taken away. Christianity says this, you are guilty. You are definitely guilty, but you're definitely not condemned. You know why? Somebody has to pay. Jesus paid. Jesus was condemned for you. That's the gospel. The gospel ain't good advice. The gospel ain't good suggestions. The gospel ain't good, good morals. The very word gospel means what? Good news. It's a reality, a proclamation of victory. Victory over sin. Victory over death that you could not earn on your own. Jesus is saying, I took the judgment so that you could be free. I went to the grave so that you can come out of the grave. I died alone so that you will never, ever be alone. I died defenseless so that you will never be defenseless. So that I could be your ultimate advocate. 
I died stripped naked so that you will be clothed in my righteousness. And so on the cross, Jesus proclaims, it is finished. You know what that phrase is in Greek? It means the debt has been paid. I paid the debt. The transaction has been made. Somebody must pay. Jesus said, I paid. This is the key for those of us here struggling with patience, for those of us here struggling with poise, especially when you're being attacked, when you feel attacked. Where do you get your patience? Where do you get your poise? When you are being accused, rightly or wrongly, it's, when you're rightly accused, you know, it's a little bit easier to swallow, but what if you're wrongly accused? Where do you get the poise for that? What happens in, in, in a culture like the culture at Metro where so many come from the Eastern context, it's a shame-based context, which means your reputation is actually valued in a greater way than a lot of other societies, a lot of other cultures. What happens when you're placed on trial? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Does it say he is faithful and kind to forgive us our sins? No. Does it say he is faithful and compassionate to forgive us our sins? No. Does it say he's faithful and loving to forgive us our sins? No. I mean, God is all that. Jesus is all those things. It says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. The same person who wrote that verse wrote the gospel according to John. He's, in many, it's almost like he's thinking about that woman. I mean, I don't know what he was thinking about, but it's almost like he juxtaposed one passage over the other and saying, on one hand, you are completely redeemed. You are free. You are not condemned. But you are free to now be free from all of your unrighteousness, to go and leave your life of sin as well. Jesus is our ultimate advocate. You know why? So here we are, we're sinners. We have a death sentence. And God is the ultimate judge, but Jesus is our advocate. Why? So when Jesus is appealing on our behalf, he doesn't say, Father, Father, please forgive my people because you're a good God. You're a faithful God. You're a kind God. You're a loving God. So on the basis of your goodness, on the basis of your faithfulness, on the basis of your kindness, on the basis of your love, please forgive them. That's actually not what he says. God is all those things and more. Look at the beauty of God. But that's not what he appeals to. You know what he says? Father, my people deserve to die. And you are a just God. They deserve to be eternally separated from you. They should pay. But I took their place. I paid the price. I went to the cross. I died and took on the penalty of the sins of my people. I was separated from you on the cross. I paid the price. And you are a just God. You would never make somebody pay twice for the same sin. They don't even do that here. Let alone an infinitely just God. 
You would never make somebody pay twice for the same sin. That would be unjust. So I'm not appealing to your kindness and your goodness and your faithfulness and your love, even though you are kind and good and ever faithful and ever loving. I'm appealing to your justice. And because you are just, because I paid the debt, will you forgive my people? That's why he's kind. Who sent Jesus? That's why he's faithful. That's why he's good. That's why he's loving. The cross is where Jesus honors. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. The cross is where Jesus honors the justice of God and the mercy of God. Isn't that amazing? The cross is where the justice of God and the mercy of God come together. The cross is where the justice of God and the love of God, they meet, and as scholars say, beautifully, they embrace. God is just, and he is merciful. Jesus doesn't trample on either of those. He honors both with his own blood. What are the implications? There are many, many implications here. I'm just going to cover a couple. One, if Jesus Christ is your advocate, if he is your savior, he would also be your Lord. Verse 11, you're no longer condemned. Neither do I condemn you. Now go back and live the way you want. Go back now. You can live your best life now. No, he says, go now and leave your act of sin. No. Leave your life of sin. Remember, he doesn't say, if you go and sin no more, then you won't be condemned. That wouldn't be the gospel. That's religion. Right? He says, you are no longer condemned. Now, go and leave your life of sin. If Jesus Christ is your Savior, he would also be your Lord. Second, the gospel makes us bold. Why? No matter who's throwing stones at you, because the only stone that could truly, truly pulverize you, the only stone that could truly ruin you was already hurled at Jesus and he dashed it to pieces. That makes every other stone that will ever be hurled at you, no matter how big it feels in your context, it makes it only a mere pebble. Will you plunge your guilt? Will you plunge your shame? Will you plunge all your failures? Will you plunge your gossip, the gossip that has been said about you? Would you plunge the rejection that you've experienced? Plunge it into the patient, compassionate, gentle, gracious love of Jesus, because he is poised. But Jesus, I did all these things. Does it rattle him? The Gospels are written as eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So who is the eyewitness in the story? I mean, if you think about it, one by one, they all went away, right? They all went away one by one. So who was left? Everyone was gone. 
Who's the eyewitness? This woman is the eyewitness. That means that she must have been telling this story. Nothing here is miraculous. Nothing here is fantastic. You would actually even say that this passage is somewhat mundane. There's nothing about this, there's no dreams, there's no visions, there's no lightning. It's just a testimony of a woman's life because she changed. Have you been bruised in your life? Have you been beaten up in your life? I mean, trust me, I'm a pastor. I understand. Do you know that statistically they say more than 74% of pastors say that they have been betrayed or accused by a close friend, by a close friend. Three out of every four pastors that you know, that means, have been betrayed by somebody they deemed a good friend of theirs. Have you experienced just being beaten up by a friend, beaten up by somebody you don't know well, bruised by that? Look to Jesus. He sees. He's the ultimate judge. He sees all the bullies out there, and he also sees you. You can trust his justice. You can trust his mercy. I'm appealing to you so you would place your hope in his love, in his work, in his character. Let's pray.